Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Good morning, or good afternoon, as we are now. Thank you, Mimsy, once again for a reminder of Marcus Borg's wonderful contribution. And let me express my very great honor at being here in this, uh, not exactly chair, in this pulpit named after him, this preachment named after him. Thank you very, very much indeed. Yesterday, we looked at the first half of Matthew chapter 21, and today we're going to look at its conclusion. So just for those of you who are new today, let me fill you in on where we got to yesterday in this exciting bat drama. Jesus comes into Jerusalem deliberately enacting signs that identify him as the promised Davidic heir, the son of David, the one who was going to come in as a priestly royal figure. That's how the word Messiah was understood. A priestly royal figure who was going to come in and offer the definitive sacrifice following the example of Melchizedek. That was the widespread understanding of what would happen in the last jubilee, which was roughly the period between Jesus' public ministry and the destruction of Jerusalem. Just to give you an idea that there was lots of public expectation around these things. So, he enacts the signs, and the temple authorities, who are not fools, come up to him and say, okay, we, we, we read the code, we know what you're doing, we know that you're enacting this Davidic material. Now, tell us, by what authority do you do this? And who has given you this authority? This is a very good question. This is the question that any sensible guardians of the temple should have been asking. <laughs> because they knew that the prophecies were that the temple would eventually be destroyed and that they should be awaiting the arrival of the Messianic figure. They had to keep their watch out for all the charlatans <laughs> who came in, traipsed in, pretending to be the one. In other words, they were asking Jesus the right question. And remember, he doesn't answer them by saying, well, actually, I am God himself, and I gave myself my own authority. Why? Because that would instantly have set off their blasphemy alert. Beep, beep, beep. Like, rather obviously. And they would have stoned him on the spot. Okay. He wouldn't have been able to get across what he was actually doing in being put to death if they had, as it were, been triggered into precocious enactment. He needed to slow things down so that they could learn what was about to happen. But also, because he was, in fact, who we have learnt he is, he knew that he should not break the law. In other words, he knew he should not commit blasphemy. He had to get them to see who he was. So he asks them the questions. He asks them the question about John the Baptist, and they then run away from that because they're frightened. They're put on the spot. Ooh, we'll get lynched if we answer that one. So he then makes it easy for them. He says, okay, let's see if I can get you 
into the position whereby you're going to understand me. So he asked them the parable about the son who said he wouldn't obey but then did, and the son who said he would obey but then didn't, and asked which one got it right. And they say, duh, the one who said he wouldn't but then did. In other words, they've understood perfectly well that it's what you do that matters, not what you say. So he then says, okay, you couldn't answer my previous question about John the Baptist, but now actually you could answer it because you know perfectly well that it was the people who did what John the Baptist said who were right, and you who didn't do what John the Baptist said who were wrong. In other words, you've got to occupy the right space in order to be able to understand the answer. That's the point he's getting across to. And now he's going to do something even more subtle because he really, really wants them to understand what's going on and how not to be scandalized by it, even though he fears they will be. But this is not a rubbing something in your face parable. This is a can I get you to see what's going on here parable. You can work it out for yourselves. So let's go through it now. Here are another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to tenants and went into another country. Okay, they would all have heard immediately what he was doing. A, he was talking about agriculture. They would all have known the basic rules about agriculture. Jerusalem was a city, but yes, it was in the midst of agricultural country. And all of them would have had interests in the good functioning of the agriculture of their country. These were not widely set apart as they are in, in many of our modern big cities, so that they wouldn't have an idea of what he was talking about. But secondly, they would have recognized immediately that he was suggesting to them bits of the prophet Isaiah, where the Lord plants a vineyard. Actually, King David is the one who plants the vineyard, but the Lord has set it up, and then digs a, a wine press, and then, well, actually, his son Solomon builds the tower, but the tower is the temple. They would have understood perfectly well that this was a reference to David and Solomon having set up Israel. No problem. So they would have heard both elements at the same time. They, they were not stupid. They understood the references, the allusions, um, in many of the same ways that modern kids watching, uh, I don't know, Star Wars or uh, The Lord of the Rings will pick up all sorts of allusions to other stories that they know about. They'll know the immediate level and the reference level. Okay. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Okay. Well, First of all, what is this owner doing, setting this whole thing up, then being so foolish as to go into another country? Actually, it's asking for it, because you give land to tenants, and you're automatically setting things up, whereby they are hoping that you never come back. In Hebrew law, there was, and is to this day, something called the law of adverse possession. Have you ever heard of that before? Adverse possession is, means that if you owe, if you occupy a property in defiance of the legitimate owners and manage to maintain your occupancy of that despite their legal protests against you, 
for a certain amount of time, it could be five years, it could be ten years, then you win. Actually, it's used in the modern state of Israel to justify the settlers taking lands from the Palestinians. But it's, a, it's not a stupid law in itself because it suggests that in ancient countries which didn't have a strong central state, the powers that be had an interest in keeping the peace. And if the legitimate owners weren't strong enough actually physically to get back their territory, then probably it was in the best interest of everybody that there wasn't an endless squabble about the matter. But that after a certain amount of time, says, okay, I'm sorry, we weren't able to protect your rights, they're the owners now. In a modern state, with uh, bringing in the National Guard and all that, this should not be an issue. But uh, in, the ancient, in the ancient world, the, the law of adverse possession was not an entirely stupid way of trying to keep the peace. But so, an owner going into a foreign country was basically setting things up in such a way that, of course, the tenants were going to want to get hold of the property. That's what tenants do, particularly in a place where ultimately the law is in their favor. So, when the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Well, again, if you were uh, an agriculturally minded listener, which they all would have been, you'd say, but that's a pretty dumb thing to do. If you send uh, uh, one of your servants to the tenants in the first year, there aren't going to be any fruits. I mean, not only are there not going to be any fruits, but the book of Deuteronomy says that you have no rights to any fruits that there are for the first three years anyhow. So that's the law. So sending a, a visitor, a servant, it actually only has one purpose, which is to remind people that you're a stakeholder. And the notion that the tenants would beat you up if you were the servant is not entirely stupid. Actually, you would probably ask the tenants to beat you up. I know that sounds really weird. This is not some sadomasochistic thing. This is the only way at the time that you could demonstrate that you'd done your job. If you were a servant and you went to visit the property and they didn't beat you up for asking the impertinent thing, when you got back home, your master might not believe that you'd been there. It's like if you hire a lawyer to get something uh, complicated in the law courts here and the lawyer doesn't emerge a little bit sweaty and disheveled and looking as though they've actually had to fight you might think, the lawyer wasn't really on my side. Yeah? You actually want your servant to be a little bit bloodied and bruised. That's the only way that the servant would know how to show you that he hadn't gone on holiday to, I don't know, Beirut or somewhere interesting, instead of going to visit your, uh, uh, your property. They couldn't take a selfie at the time with them and the other tenants there. No, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't on the cards. So actually, a little bit of light bruising, preferably on the parts of the body that don't bear it too badly uh, would, would not be too much of a problem. But, and people would have been used to this. This would not be a surprise. But the killing them and all that, that's, that's taking, ratcheting it up a little bit further. Um, so the way Jesus describes this in the Matthean version, it's quite clearly divided into the prophets, both the agricultural truth, but also the prophets from before the exile. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Okay, so those are the the visitors from before the exile. Then he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Remember, first year, there aren't any fruits to be had. You just want a little light beating so as to show that you've been there. Second year, still no fruits. Third year, 
still no fruit. Fourth year, there should be just enough to be able to pay the tithes, the first fruits, to the temple. If you were an investor, only in the fifth year would you start to get any. And that wasn't, as it were, simply arcane economic knowledge. That's set forth quite clearly in the book of Deuteronomy. They would all have known that. Afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son, as if. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Okay, now here is where Jesus is being very, very clever. And please stop and think about this a little, because it really does affect the story. Here is the heir. But our word, the heir, has two meanings. It can mean the one who is going to inherit when his pops has kicked the bucket. Or it can mean the one who has just inherited because his pops has just kicked the bucket. Right? We use the heir in both those senses, the word heir. So did the, word, so did the Greeks, so did the Hebrews. The correct use depends on your knowing whether Pops has kicked the bucket or not. Right? Okay? <laughs> so that's, I'm here talking about a misogynistic world in which only men could inherit. Okay? Sorry, but that's the, that's the state of things as it was at the, at the time there. Okay, so they're saying, there is, here is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Okay, so they took him, that's sensible enough, cast him out of the vineyard, why did they cast him out of the vineyard? Actually, there was a very good reason why they cast him out of the vineyard. These were not stupid people. If they had killed him in the vineyard, his blood would have desecrated the ground and made the vine undrinkable by Jewish people. It would not have been kosher. So it would have lost its value by two-thirds. It could only be sold to Gentiles for a third of the value. So if you wanted to keep the value of your wine, you needed to... Uh, kill somebody off the premises. This is a very sensible practical issue. The one thing you do not want to do is to shed blood on agricultural land that you then want to sell the product of to your fellow Jewish people. Okay? Quite simple. There is a perfectly sensible economic rationale for taking him off campus before killing him. So they do it. They took him out of the vineyard and killed him. When then the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Okay. That's the question which Jesus poses to his listeners. Now let's stop and think a second. Before they answer that question, before we answer that question, we've got to answer the pops and the bucket question first. Do we think that those tenants were serious dumbasses who faced with the prospect that the son's pops was alive and might rustle up a militia, a well-armed militia in your country, uh, to uh, come and take back the property, would they really have been so stupid as to encourage such an act of vengeance? No. In all probability, they thought, aha, here's the heir, meaning... He wouldn't have come, let alone alone, unless he was now the owner. If we kill him, there will be nobody else who has a, 
a right of property to this. And guess what? If we kill him without witnesses and off the territory, no one will know what has happened. And after a few years, people will say, but aren't you tenants of someone else? And you'll say, yeah, but he doesn't seem to have appeared. And uh, guess what? We've already been occupying this space for more than the requisite number of years, so it's ours anyhow. In other words, not a stupid thing to do. So, you may think it's immoral, but it's not stupid. Whereas the first, oh, we'll kill him and encourage his dad to send the troops to, to take vengeance on us. That is seriously stupid, right? Okay? So Jesus is asking them, and this is the question, he says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, they are really going to have to think because he has been putting to them a question about by whose authority he is doing this and who gave him that authority. So now, he's turning it back to them. Was this person who is coming in acting on his own authority and who had given him that authority? But they immediately rushed to, I'm afraid, the obvious and wrong answer. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. This is what I call the we are the good guys response. And it's hopeless. Actually, the Greek is tougher than this. Our translations are all hygienic. It says he'll put those bastards to a bastardly death. Let's not, uh, let's not stay so, uh, so hygienic as, the, as the, our modern translations give us. He'll put those bastards to a bastardly death. In other words, they're answering with real anger. We're the good guys here. We receive a real injustice when it's done. Of course we stand up for the, for the one who's been, uh, uh, who's been killed. And basically, we also we stand up for property rights. And then there is this wonderful pause, this little bit of silence, before Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The first thing I want you to notice about that is Jesus is defending the murderous tenants. Unlike the other guys, he's saying he doesn't see any, he has no objection to the murderous tenants having killed the son. No objection at all. On the contrary, it's kind of what he expects. The son coming in, and if they kill him, then they become the owners. Actually, that's what he wants. He's not at all concerned about being murdered. That's one of the most amazing things about this parable. We read it entirely the wrong way around. We read it as though Jesus is using a story to blame some Jewish people for killing him. He's not. He's telling them a story, giving a sympathetic reading to the murderers. I repeat it to you, because we so very rarely hear these words in, the, in those terms. The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Who is he quoting? Those who I asked yesterday will know the answer. David, thank you. It's part of the answer. He's giving David's interpretation of this parable. <laughs> He's saying, effectively, you know, you will be able to tell the real son of David because he will come in, he will allow himself to be murdered, and it's not because he wants to take vengeance on the tenants. It's because it's the only way they know for him to be able to give them the tenancy. But he then says to his listeners, therefore I tell you, meaning the ones who have given this purely vengeful response, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. Because you will take vengeance against the killers. Your world is stuck in the world of tit for tat. You could not understand the gift that is being given to you. If you could understand the gift that is being given to you, you will understand that as the killers come to realize what they have done and how much generosity was being given to them, they will be forgiven for their murder, which was a small matter from my perspective, and enabled to begin to produce the fruits of the kingdom of which they will be the owners because I have given it to them. Do you see that? It's actually completely the reverse of the normal reading that we're accused of, which stays stuck within the tit-for-tat anti-Semitic reading. Jesus is saying, only if you step out of the world of taking vengeance for violence will you begin to be able to understand what is going on. Then it says, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. It's very interesting. In Mark and Luke, it said he was speaking against them. In Matthew, whose reading is much more subtle in this, par in this parable, they understand that he is asking them to occupy a space that they are unwilling to occupy, which is why they can't answer his questions concerning, or rather his answers, concerning by whose authority. They know that he's got them in this place where only by occupying a different space than they're happy to occupy could they possibly understand the one who is coming in. And it says, but when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. In other words, they're back in exactly the space they were in when they refused to answer the question about John the Baptist. Now, what I want to bring out as I end this, this particular reading, is what it means about what Jesus was trying to get across to them. He was nudging them into the position of understanding the one who is coming in, the Davidic heir, the one who you question whether I am he, is coming into a situation where he's perfectly aware that people will try to kill him. That is not a problem. He's the son of God. Death does not run him. He is not concerned with moralizing about his killers, let alone exacting vengeance. He is concerned with whether they will understand the coming of the owner. The owner will come as the one 
who has been killed and forgiving you. And anyone who grasps that will in fact be set free to become the owner, the son in the son, and to start to be able to produce the fruits of the kingdom, of which they will be an heir. That's what's being offered. Do you see the extraordinary vision which Jesus is offering by means of David's interpretation of David and how he was not trying to catch the scribes and Pharisees and the temple authorities out. He was trying to offer them the place from which to understand what was really happening without fast-triggering them into reacting to blasphemy. They were going to do that eventually. But at least he wanted first the chance, if you like, what our Lent is for, for them to sink in to what was really happening and to prepare to be forgiven and thus to become the heirs of the kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.